Now on Documentary on News Talk, broadcaster Sinead Ahern explores life with cancer and life afterwards in Breast Cancer and Me. I've been told that I'm brave, that I'm an inspiration. I don't agree. I didn't do anything extraordinary. All I did was survive breast cancer. I was one of 4,082 new referrals to the breast clinic at University Hospital Waterford in 2017. Of that number, 194 were diagnosed with breast cancer. I was one of the unlucky 5%. If I'm honest, I actually believe I'm lucky. Lucky that I was diagnosed early and that treatment worked for me. I'm grateful too that the treatment I'm still receiving is continuing to work and that I'm in good health today. However, life after cancer is not without its challenges. The fatigue and other side effects can last for years and the fear of recurrence is at times all-consuming. 85% of all women who are diagnosed with breast cancer are aged 40 or over. Since I was diagnosed at the age of 32, I've met several women from Waterford and across the southeast who are also diagnosed in their 30s. Three of them share their experiences with me. I'm Sinead Ahern and this is Breast Cancer and Me. Everyone's heard about breast cancer, but what is it and who does it affect? Dr Miriam O'Connor is a consultant oncologist at University Hospital Waterford. It's a very common disease that predominantly affects women. Predominantly affects women as they head towards the menopause and after the menopause. It's a disease that strikes fear to the heart of every woman. And then there are quirks in it in that everybody's breast cancer is different. I could see 10 women all with a diagnosis of breast cancer and outside my office the stories they have are all very similar. But each of them when they come into my office there's something specific that makes each of their cancers different. And that's one of the difficulties with breast cancer. People hear lots of stories about it and don't know am I a good story, am I a bad story, where do I fit in? I found a lump really quite randomly. I wasn't checking myself. I know we're told you're supposed to check yourself every month, but I was 32. It wasn't one of my priorities. And it was a Thursday night. I was simply rolling over in bed to go to sleep and my arm brushed against my chest and I felt something hard. I knew straight away that it shouldn't have been there. I think my thoughts initially were, oh my God, this could be cancer. That my mum had breast cancer when she was 50 and I know I was 18 years younger than when she was diagnosed. But it happens. People can be diagnosed in their 20s. And I was annoyed at myself. I was annoyed at myself that I hadn't noticed it sooner. And also about how I reacted, that I got really scared and that I did panic. I went into my GP the next day in floods of tears. And I felt like I was completely overreacting. I just couldn't really help the way I was feeling. My GP, Dr. Sean Hogan, he still remembers that day more than two years on. Unfortunately, Sinead, I can vividly remember that day because I got the fright of my life when I went to examine you. I can remember exactly where I felt the lump and I can remember knowing uh, this is cancer and being aghast at such a young woman with no real risk factors other than a positive family history that this shouldn't be happening. Um, So I I remember vividly, yes. Thankfully, he didn't tell me. Uh, I don't think there'd be anything to benefit by conveying any sense of alarm to you but the difference is is that normally in a young woman under the age of 35 with a discrete lump there 
Breast Cancer Clinic uh, guidelines say you should be seen within six weeks. However, on your note of referral, I put down this is cancer. And hence that was able to speed things up. And that was the most important thing for me was to get in the system as quickly as we possibly could. I didn't have to wait long. I got an appointment at the breast clinic at University Hospital Waterford within two weeks. After a quick examination, I was sent down for an ultrasound and they also carried out a biopsy. The appointment itself was reassuring. They'd mentioned things like fibroadenoma, so I wasn't as worried as I had been. Here's my mom, Catherine. It would have been 12 years ago I was diagnosed with the same type of breast cancer, ductal breast. I just had the lumpectomy and radiotherapy. But I didn't think that Sinead would at 32 years of age, you know. There was no family history, none of my sisters, mother, aunts, anybody. There was no history of breast cancer, so I wasn't really concerned. I will say I was a little concerned, but I sort of said, sure, you know, no, no, it won't happen. My dad, Jerry, though, he was a little bit more worried. I thought straight away, this can't be right at all. I mean, what, it was only about 10 years ago when Catherine had her cancer. And I said, no, no, no way, this can't be happening again because we went through hell with Catherine, like a very warning time. And here we are with my little girl, my little Sinead, and she having a lump in, in her breast as well. Like, and I said, no, no, they can't be right. I had to wait two weeks then for the results, which was quite difficult. And it would have been 10 days later I got a letter to come in on the Thursday afternoon. The hardest part of cancer treatment is the waiting. It's the not knowing because your mind runs away with you completely. I think once you have the information, once you know what's going to happen and you have a plan, you can deal with it. That Thursday came around and my mom and my dad came down. So mom came in with me to meet the consultant and we were waiting for hours. It felt like we were the last people there and we were brought in to see the consultant. I think my mom knew straight away that it wasn't right. The nurse was there as well, Rose when I saw her there as well that the news wasn't going to be good. I could nearly say it before he said it. I'm afraid it's not good news. Even though I think I was expecting it, it was a huge shock. You're getting all this information so quickly and it's just, it's quite hard to take in. Thinking about how am I going to tell dad and how am I going to tell my brother and how am I going to tell my boyfriend who's waiting at home now for hours and hasn't heard from me. It didn't really feel real. I remember ringing my boss and being completely fine on the phone and even telling Vinny, my boyfriend. I wasn't that upset. I think I was a little bit hyper that it didn't have time to sink in. And I'd said to Liz that I was going to come into work the next day, but I actually didn't sleep that night. Every time I closed my eyes, my mind was racing. All I knew was that I was going to have to have surgery and that I would definitely need radiotherapy and that there was a possibility I would need chemo. So I kept thinking, I don't want chemo, I can't cope with it. But I also knew that of all the breast cancers you could be diagnosed with, mine was the most treatable, that there was plenty of options. Alice, she was 35 when she found a lump under her arm. She was referred to the breast clinic Nobody was anyway concerned when I was in all the appointments. Like So I was no way worried. I was laughing and joking with everyone I met along the way. It was probably another two weeks before I got those results. So I was actually going in that day by myself until my partner said, oh, do you know what, I'll just go in with you just in case. Thank God he did come with me because I was absolutely floored when I did go in. 
so we knew straight away when we went in, the doctor was so serious looking and so was the nurse. They said, those words, you've got cancer. She says dealing with the diagnosis wasn't easy. I can remember after getting the diagnosis and walking around Tesco one day, and this was before my surgery when I still had cancer in me, I just burst out crying going, I'm walking around Tesco with cancer inside me and nobody knows. And I was like, I'm not even sick. Like, I feel normal. When we think about somebody with cancer, they look sick there after losing a load of weight. They look unwell. But like for you and me, we were healthy young women diagnosed with breast cancer. It's just so strange how it can hit your body like that. Zoe, a really good friend of mine who was there throughout my journey with breast cancer, was herself diagnosed a year later. I would have had a history of breast lumps. I was always kind of reassured that they were never anything to worry about. But I was kind of in the system from about the age of 15. So they had agreed to screen me every two years. I had actually let it slide. It was four years since my last screening. And I just said to my GP, I'd had other health conditions. So I had let it slide and I said, you know, I better go and get it checked. So she put me through to them and I was diagnosed with ductal carcinoma in situ, which there was no lump. It showed up on a mammogram. So I went out to get a lump checked, but that wasn't what I was to be worried about at all. It was quite a shock, actually. And I suppose I'd been in there so many times I knew something was wrong by the reaction of the doctor doing the ultrasound. And he showed me the mammograms then. So it kind of turns your whole world upside down. Like I have two kids. It's just a big deal to think about your mortality, especially while you're still in your 30s. Colette had only turned 30 when she found a lump and looking back now, she says, she would have insisted on an earlier appointment. I think I wouldn't have left it run to November. Like I went in in the August because my GP said to me, you're young and I won't put it down as a priority because basically of your age and there's so many other women ahead of you and I didn't fit the category basically. So I kind of left it go on the long finger, I think. No. Thankfully, it it worked out for me still. Like it wasn't gone too aggressive, but I don't think I would have listened. I think I would have pushed harder at the start and I would have pushed to get into Watford and to get my scans and my biopsies. And it would have been still the same outcome. Like I would have still needed the chemo and all the rest of it. But yeah, I was walking a slippery slope and I didn't know it. I remember coming into work. I came into work on the Monday And I was telling people, and I was really conscious of people assuming the worst, because here in WLR, we'd only lost our, our lovely colleague Kevin Casey in that January. So that was three months later, and we had someone else in the building who'd been diagnosed with cancer. And like Kevin had the worst type of skin cancer you could get, and he was really unlucky. And I was afraid that people were going to automatically just think that I was going to die too. And I didn't want people thinking that. I I spent time trying to reassure people, you know, I'm going to be okay. I'm having surgery. It'll all be fine. Just radiotherapy. I'll be back to work. Here's my boss, news editor, Liz Reddy. You'll hear her asking me a few questions throughout this programme. The way you went about it, you were very on the outside, so calm. You reassured all of us because, like, we were all up in a heap. And yet you were the one that was calm and collected and had all the information for us. I think having the information for me was key. Like as a journalist, I like to know everything. Once I understood why something was happening, I found it easier to cope with. I ended up having two surgeries. The first, it removed a three centimetre tumour as well as several lymph nodes from under my arm. 
and the second took additional tissue from around where that tumour was because there was evidence that there were still precancerous cells remaining. Now, having that second surgery, it was frustrating. I had planned to go back to work that week and instead had to take two more weeks off. But at the same time, I got good news at that appointment. I was told that the cancer hadn't spread, which was fantastic news. The chemotherapy came as a huge shock. I was under the impression that because my breast cancer hadn't spread, that I didn't need chemotherapy, that I was just going to be on hormone treatment, which is a tablet every day, and that I was going to have radiotherapy. So I had celebrated after my second surgery and before I went back to work and I kind of felt like the worst part was over, that the radiotherapy, you know, wouldn't be that difficult. I met my oncologist, Dr. Miriam O'Connor, on the 1st of June, was back at work and all. It was the only appointment I went to by myself. I think I was a little bit overconfident. I was absolutely floored when she told me I needed chemotherapy. Initially, all I could think was, oh my God, my hair, I'm going to lose my hair. I understood completely why she was recommending it and I could have turned it down, you know, it was still my decision to go ahead with it. But they do this test called the Oncotype DX test and Dr O'Connor will explain it better. Chemotherapy is difficult. Chemotherapy brings life-changing effects. Cancer brings life-changing effects too. Cancer is difficult. But yes, the purpose of this test was in this group of women where the cancer is estrogen-driven and it's confined to the breast. This test has been able to show that over a third of women need the anti-estrogen and no chemo. So we're very clearly able to say that chemo is not of benefit to them and we're able to spare those women all of the side effects of chemo. So that's good for those women. For the women who do need to have chemo, I find it's a real help when they're not sure, do I want to go through this and the side effects and the lasting side effects. When you have a test that's specifically related to you as an individual that says chemo helps prevent my cancer from coming back, it really helps to go, okay, I'll get through this. As Dr. O'Connor says, it's the one test you want to fail. But we know that women whose scores are over 25, giving them chemotherapy, even though the glands are clear, helps to reduce breast cancer recurrence. My score was 32, showed I had a 22% chance of breast cancer returning within the next 10 years. That would have brought me up to 42. It kind of was a chance I didn't really want to take. You want to do everything you possibly can do to prevent it coming back for my mum, the news about chemo came as a huge shock. I sort of said, well, you know, everything will be fine. She'll discuss your medication and she'll discuss, tell you when you're starting radiotherapy. So I had no concern at all. I was in work early afternoon. I got the phone call to say I have to go for chemotherapy. And it was like somebody, I think it was nearly worse than hearing about the cancer. It was the fear of the unknown. To me, the chemo was alien. I I found it frightening. I rang Vinny, my boyfriend, and he came over and the two of us met Rachel, one of the breast cancer nurses, and she was fantastic. She sat me down and she went through exactly what to expect, went through all the side effects of all the drugs. I was going to be on one particular type of chemo for four sessions, so there were every two weeks, and then the final four sessions were going to be of another drug. 
also was recommended that I go to the Rotunda in Dublin for fertility treatment because chemotherapy and the hormone treatment drugs, they affect your fertility. I hadn't decided at that stage whether I wanted to have kids or not, but the consultant said the choice potentially was been taken away from me. They recommended I go through a course of IVF to have my eggs retrieved. That started quite quickly in June. It didn't even cross my mind. You hear somebody that has breast cancer, you just don't realise the ramifications of it, what happens after being treated. And this was one of those things. I don't think people realise the life-changing effects of cancer treatment. Fertility is a huge thing. And Alice speaks about this, like Alice had been trying for a baby when she was diagnosed with breast cancer. They offered to freeze my eggs or embryos like free of charge because I'm a cancer patient. For me, that was like a massive thing because I didn't have four or five grand to go through a cycle of IVF. So myself and Brian had gone up to Dublin. So we were lucky we started a cycle which you know you've done as well. It takes about a month's self-injections. So that in itself is another world that you're thrown into. I know you told me that you did the self-injections, whereas I just couldn't look down at my stomach and stick a needle in there. So Brian used to do it. And then there was a couple of times, say, that Brian was playing hurling matches. He wasn't around and I'd have to go out to his father. His father would have to give me the injections then. And I think once you do that, your relationship is never going to be the same again. It was probably one of the most challenging aspects of the treatment because you have to travel up and down to Dublin two, three times a week for blood tests and scans. It's uh, daily injections and you don't feel like yourself. It altered my moods. You know, it was my last month in work. And I also knew that, okay, in a couple of weeks' time, I'm also going to be having chemotherapy. So it was like my life was changing in front of my eyes and I had no control whatsoever over it. Waiting to go into that oncology day ward is extremely nerve-wracking. My mum, she was really taken aback. It was an afternoon session and I really thought it was a little bit chaotic. I sort of said, oh my God, I don't think we can cope with this. Right, because they seem to bring loads of people in the waiting room. But within, I'd say, 10, 20 minutes, everything was calm. But I just dreaded when she used to hook you up. I was afraid of reaction, anything, but everything went according to plan. It went fine. While you were there, you became aware of other people in the room and some people were old and some young and a man with a young child came in and you sort of said, oh my God, like, and you begin to realise, well, you're ever so lucky. We are lucky that your cancer was gone. Some of these were dealing with brain tumours. It puts things in a bit of perspective. Everybody always had a smile And the nurses were so good in there, like exceptionally good. Colette's first session of chemo didn't go according to plan. After my first round of chemo, um, I ended up in hospital, I think, for was it four or five nights? My intestine, the whole lot down there just all became inflamed and very, very painful. And then they thought it was my appendix. So they were saying on top of having chemo that I was going to need surgery for that. 
But after a couple of CTs and all the rest of it, it turned out it wasn't. So thankfully, my whole treatment plan was reassessed and the dosage was actually reduced, I think, by not by much, like by maybe 20 percent. But I did tolerate it a lot better. It was tough still, like, you know, yourself, bone pain, sickness, tiredness, just general brain fog. Like you feel like you're there, but you're not there. Like I'd have treatment on a Wednesday and come Thursday night, the pain would be kicking in and spend all day Friday, Saturday in bed and then make an appearance on Sunday and then start trying to get back to normal again. There were days where you'd have no energy that you'd feel so unwell that I'd barely even be able to make it up the stairs and days where you were so frustrated that I felt like I gave up my independence. I was having to rely on people to, you know, I couldn't open a bottle of 7-Up. Just had no strength and they were the things I really struggled with. But it gets easier. Like I moved house a week after my first chemo session. Like I was able to do it. And I'm glad I did it. Moving house and moving in with my boyfriend meant that we had room for my mum to stay. I think he hadn't moved in many, many years. So it would have been a huge move for him just even moving house. But moving in with my daughter that was going having chemotherapy and then not on that. But then the, her mother arriving <laughs> every second week for uh, he wouldn't know how many days But it worked very well. He is an exceptional fellow. Very good. And we all seemed to just work together, really. It just, we got on, yeah, this was it. Initially, all I could think about was, I'm going to lose my hair. Oh my God, what am I going to do? I felt like my hair defined me. But when I came to it, it was actually fine. They said, two weeks after your first session, your hair will fall out. And I did. And I thought it would be upsetting, but it wasn't. The next morning I managed to get an appointment with my hairdresser, Brian Kelly, who is fantastic. I didn't cry. I laughed my way through that. I think I was quite surprised at how well I looked with my head shaved. I think it was a three blade all over, so I still had a little bit of hair. I felt a little bit more confident, like, okay, I can cope with this. I can deal with this. That was the Thursday. But by the following Monday, my hair was completely falling out. I went home to Cork that night and it was my cousin's girlfriend shaved my head completely and it was kind of a relief to have it gone. Here's my dad, Jerry. What didn't surprise me was the fact that you went away and spent a lot of money getting a wig that you never wore. You tried on and never wore. I was on the phone to you and you had to go over to Tesco's and you had these little woolly hats that you just put on your head to keep yourself warm. Uh, They were all in the wash. And uh, Catherine said, uh, what did you wear going over? I wore nothing. And what happened? What happened? What, it doesn't matter what happened. You said, I don't care what people think of me. I'm quite happy with my bald head. And you were. And you were handsome as well, eh? Colette found losing her hair very difficult to deal with. I think once your hair goes, it's so obvious what's going on. You're not yourself anymore. However, she says there was a sense of relief when her now fiancé, Robbie, shaved her head. There were obviously tears, but then like... It was gone, you know, that fear of like waking up and seeing it on the pillow or afraid to brush your hair, afraid to wash your hair. It was all gone. And it just felt like that little hurdle was done, like I had crossed that. Plus, we had gone to Cork, say, before treatment started and I had gotten a beautiful wig. It was exactly like my own hair. She preferred to wear a wig or a hat whenever she left the house. But I never had the confidence to go out with just just my bare head. 
improve Woten and the Greenway myself and Robbie and I got really, really hot and obviously with chemo you'd get the hot flushes and I think one of them came on me going across the viaduct in Kilmac Thomas and he was like, just take off the hat, just do it. And I was like, right, I'll just do it. And I think that was my first time out in public. Now I carried my hat. But yeah, walking up the greenway with no hat, no wig, no hair. I think you owned that part a lot more than what I did. But I think when I finally got a little bit of hair back on my head, I remember reading one day on Instagram just a post and it was like basically the old you more or less is gone like looks wise. Own what you have now, warts and all. And I think it was the next day I was like, the wig, it's gone, it's going back in the box. You're listening to Breast Cancer and Me on Documentary on News Talk. Finishing treatment is a huge milestone. Since I completed radiotherapy, they've installed a bell at Whitfield Clinic and patients ring it after their final treatment. Zoe did that in December of last year. It was amazing, actually. It was really good. It was kind of like, see you later. This is done. You know, celebration. I think it's a really good idea. Everybody, you know, there's always people in the waiting area because they just have a constant queue of people all day and all evening. And like everyone kind of gathers around and celebrates with you. So it's just fantastic. And it kind of makes you feel you go out on a high from there. Again, I just can't emphasize enough how amazing the service was out there. Just really really great and it was a boost you know you feel like you've hit that milestone you've done it you're through I finished radiotherapy at the start of December in 2017 and I set myself the target of coming back to work in January it's not easy coming back to work the fatigue from the cancer treatment is like no other tiredness your whole body you're just exhausted and you can barely move That takes time. They say it can be a year, at least, before you start to feel like yourself again. I lost some of my fingernails. I lost the feeling in the tips of my fingers. My hair was only growing back. So you're very conscious of of how you look. Another side effect of chemo is you do get memory loss. They call it brain fog or chemo brain. It's also to do with the lack of estrogen. So I still have ongoing issues with that. I forget people's names, I forget words, but you develop ways of of coping with that. So coming back to work, I was quite worried. Work was so supportive. I came back for three days a week for the first month or so, but I was coming in wondering, would I be able to write a news story? Would I be able to remember people's names? Was I going to forget how to do things or was I going to forget to do something important? I mean, the job I do, it's not a life or death situation, but it can be a stressful and demanding job at the same time. So I had all this hanging over me. And thankfully, it went okay. I'd be lying if I said it was easy. But you put that pressure on yourself. The only person that was putting pressure on me was me. I was trying to prove a point, to prove to myself that I could still do the same job. I was determined to get back to work and back to normal as quickly as I possibly could. Would you recommend that approach? I think it's what suited me, but most specialists recommend taking a considerable amount of time off afterwards. Dr O'Connor will explain it. You've asked a lot of your body. Now you need to let it recover. You need to let it collapse in a heap because you've pushed it to get through all of these treatments. And I find if you push it to get back to work full-time, it often doesn't work. And then it's so disappointing to have to get time off again. So I say take a bit longer than what you did, 
But as you know, Sinead, not everybody listens to doctor's advice. And it worked for you. Getting back was good and getting back is good. I often see a lot of people trying to get back to exactly what they were doing and they haven't realized you've got to walk before you can run. So I say take a few months after the treatment. Be kind to yourself. Be good to yourself. Take the pressure off yourself. You might look good, but it doesn't mean you can do everything. Colette, her job would have been much more demanding. And she took a year off and that was right for her. I think I left work on the 1st of December 2016 and I didn't return until the 2nd of January 2018. For the first, like maybe up to Patrick's day of 2018, it could have been a two or a three day week. And then it was slowly building back up. And I feel come maybe that July, I was actually due to go back on like, say, a full time basis five days a week. I felt really kind of overwhelmed by it. It was just, it all felt like it got too much for me. And I was actually feeling really tired at the time. So I actually approached my manager. So when we put our heads together, we just came up with the idea that I'd take one day a week off at my own expense. So for the majority of 2018, I actually did work part-time. But then I think come 2019, I was like, I'm back in, you know, I'm ready for it. And my energy levels had come back up to a fairly good level compared to what they were that July when I was hanging like I couldn't have faced into full-time work still and I think that really goes back to the thing well you look fine you're here you're not ringing in sick but like you have to sit down I suppose and be honest with your employer and say I don't feel great like I feel tired and I'm finding it hard to focus and the minute you say that they're so understanding and so supportive And Zoe took a similar approach to me. She started work a month after her radiotherapy finished. So I stopped work at the end of July and I resumed work in January, actually. So it was close, soon enough after the radiotherapy, but I changed careers and it was a new new opportunity. So I really wanted to get in and just get in and get cracking into it. And I don't regret that. So I, I felt well enough to do it then. And I was actually quite happy to get back to normal life. I think that's what you really crave when you're going through the treatment. You just want to do the normal things you've always done. When people see you now and say, Sinead's fantastic, she's brilliant, she's in great form, she looks amazing. But there are all those other things that are happening in the background. You're still on medication. Everyone assumes that once you're finished treatment, you're fine, that you've been given the all clear, that, you know, you can put it behind you. In reality, that's not easy to do. Like the tamoxifen, for some people, it's a daily reminder that you've had cancer. Here's Colette. But it is a reminder you were sick, like, you know, and you do need this tablet daily to keep you on the right track. And but then on the other side of the coin is, yeah, I'm thankful for it. And I know it comes with its side effects and there are risks involved in taking it. But like you have to look at why you're taking it and do the benefits outweigh the negatives. And in our case, it obviously does. I have an injection every four weeks. That's also a reminder. It's a nuisance. Every four weeks, I go to my local GP practice to the Carrigdown surgery where one of the practice nurses, Ashling, gives me the injection. And what's difficult about this is that it's not just an injection, it's an implant. So it's a quite a thick needle, probably the thickest needle I've ever had to work with. So I can only imagine what it feels like from your end. Take your breath in there now. Now, I'd say you can feel this being... Pinched off and put in. Okay. A little bit of pressure on there now. Hold on. 
I was their first patient on that drug. In the practice nurse community I'm in, I've only come across one or two nurses who have patients on this. So for me, it was totally new to actually put you on this. I remember the first time when you came into me, I was very fiddly, um, but I'm a pro at it now. And I know my colleague Nora as well, it was felt the same at the beginning. But then once we realised, obviously, the importance of it and giving it right, I don't think we've had any side effects from giving from administering it. So from my point of view, I've been very happy to give it. You are probably the youngest person I've met in the practice as well, who's had breast cancer and who has gone through all the treatment. And to see you come through the other end has been amazing. You know, that's one little element of life after cancer. But it's also the kind of side effects that come with those medications. So I have hot flushes. I have night sweats. You know, I wake up in the middle of the night absolutely boiling. It could be freezing and I am roasting for no reason. Did you go into early menopause? I'm completely in the menopause. In the menopause since the age of 32 and I will be for another couple of years, which comes with its own complications. So I'm at risk of osteoporosis. I'm at increased risk of of having cardiovascular disease later in life. So I'm really kind of conscious of my health. Like I try and exercise as much as I can. You know, I take calcium supplements. I've even given up caffeine and I don't drink as much because they're things that make the hot flushes worse. You develop coping skills and you try and do things that help your symptoms and help you lead as normal a life as you possibly can. Alice is also on tamoxifen. However, she says she really wanted a second baby. The baby thing was hanging over me. I couldn't forget about it. I really wanted a second baby or a sibling for little Billy. I didn't want him to go through this big bad world just being only him. And then another big part of me was even more determined to give him a sibling because it's horrible even saying this, but I just thought, God forbid, if the cancer ever did come back, and came back and got me the second time. And if I did have to die, like, I would hate for Billy to be alone. Do you know, if he had a sibling, at least he could find some solace with a brother or a sister. So that was something that pushed me on even further. So I made an appointment with the oncologist and asked her, was it possible to take a break? And she was hoping that I'd stay on tamoxifen for 18 months. But this was 13 months and I was like struggling. I couldn't think about anything else. And everybody around me was having babies and it was just in my face everywhere. I was diagnosed at 35 and I was like, I've got a small window basically. So the oncologist was so lovely. I was hugging her, I was crying, Brian was crying again. She knew like it was a struggle. She said, you've done well to stay on it for 13 months. She gave me basically a year to get pregnant. She got pregnant almost straight away. But unluckily for me, I probably hadn't gotten my head around it that I still thought, oh, this is never going to happen. We're going to go down the IVF route. You know, this is going to take forever. It's going to be a slog. But it happened straight away. So then I didn't handle it very well. I told Brian and he was over the moon and he was so excited what you think that I would have been. But I just started panicking, just thinking, oh, my God, is the cancer going to come back? What have I done? Eventually I came around, but I was so terrified that whole pregnancy. I was afraid to get excited. I was so worried. They brought me in for an early scan. They told me there was a heartbeat. I just thought I was going to lose it because of the tamoxifen that had been on. So the second pregnancy was nothing like the pregnancy on Billy because I was so excited on the first one. And I just found I had such anxiety this time around. 
And now Billy has a little sister. Little Abigail Hope Power was born and she is perfect. Yeah, she's nine months now, so I wanted to try and breastfeed. That was another saga because I didn't know was it going to work. So I combo fed between breast and formula for 11 weeks and then I knew I had to give it up because I had to go back on the dreaded tamoxifen. I'm okay with the fact that I probably never will have children. Right now, I'm on two types of medication to stop the production of oestrogen in my body and I would have to go on a break from those drugs if I wanted to try and get pregnant. And for me, those drugs are a safety net. I feel that those drugs are my best chance of preventing this disease from coming back. I don't know what caused my breast cancer. I wasn't overweight, I exercised, and I didn't drink very much, and yet I still got breast cancer. So even if there are studies out there that show that pregnancy does not increase the recurrence risk of early-stage breast cancer, which is what I had, right now it's not something that I'm willing to take a gamble on. Fear of recurrence. It is a real thing. It's recognised by the medical professionals. I don't think we talk enough about the fear of recurrence. The fear of recurrence is huge. And it doesn't matter whether it's six months or 20 years after your cancer. The minute you notice a lump or a bump or you get a cough or you get a pain, the minute you hear of somebody else getting a recurrence, that fear is like a tornado that goes off in your head. And I say to people when they come and see me in the clinic, okay, today's checkup was fine, I'll see you. For a lot of people, I'll see you again in a year. But if there's a problem, if you're worried and you need a checkup, your GP is a really good resource. That's the first person to go to. But if that doesn't sort it and the fear is still there, you might need to come back to the breast surgery clinic or you might need to come back to the oncology clinic. So fear is a, it's a nebulous thing, but when it's there, it's overwhelming. I found what I thought was a lump in May of this year. Within days, I had an ultrasound and it didn't find anything, but I still felt like something was there and that it was getting bigger. I was back then to see the breast surgeon for a routine appointment a few weeks later. And when I voiced my concerns to him, he performed a biopsy there and then in the clinic. I had hoped to get a phone call the following week telling me that it was all clear. But instead, I got a letter on the Monday calling me back for an appointment that Thursday afternoon. And it felt like history was repeating itself. I was utterly convinced it was back. Those three and a half days were torture. In my head, if the cancer was back, it also meant it was really serious, that I was in a lot of trouble. And I think because I got such a fright when I found out that I needed chemotherapy, that I was really unprepared that day, I think when I go into any appointment now, I'm overprepared, that I'd rather know every eventuality so that if they tell me your cancer is back, I'm able to deal with it that little bit better. For those three and a half days while I was waiting for that appointment, all I could think about was breast cancer and it coming back. I never once questioned my mortality when I was going through the treatment initially, but this time around, I just couldn't get these horrible thoughts out of my mind. I wasn't even afraid of having to go through the treatment again. I was more afraid of the effect it would have on my family. Mum and Dad, they put their lives on hold for me for those nine months. And I didn't want them to go through it again. And the thought that if it was back, and if it was more serious than the initial diagnosis, that this could actually get me. 
I was even planning in my head of how am I going to say goodbye to people. I was actually thinking that far ahead that what about my mum and dad and even thinking about my nephews and like really stupid things like I couldn't stop. Fortunately, the consultant had good news. Yes. So went in on the Thursday afternoon and he called me in and I'd say it was the shortest appointment ever. He sat me down and he said, it's completely benign. You're fine. And he had his little sheet, his printout saying exactly what it was. It was this fat necrosis. So it was essentially dead tissue and scar tissue. And it was completely normal. And it was just that relief. I couldn't believe it. I was so delighted. And how do you feel now having been through that? I think I felt quite guilty that I had put my family through that again. But my mum understood. Oh, I do without a doubt again, because you're only 34. So you will always have just that little bit of fear, doubt. You are in the system. The the system works when you're in it. You on your medication. You're reviewed every six months to a year or so. And we just, fingers crossed, trust in the Lord that, you know, it won't reoccur and that's it. Zoe says the fear of cancer coming back is just something you have to live with. My outlook would be that we're lucky, like we're in the system now. You know, you're going to be screened every year for the rest of your life. So really, you're in good hands and that is reassuring. But yeah, I had days where there was something wrong or... And you're having anxiety, you know, you have a lump or a bump or something and you're ringing the GP and they're saying, you better go out and just get checked, you know, just in case. That can be kind of terrifying because you feel like you're at the other side of it. So you don't want to go back to that. But it's a necessary, you know, and you need to, again, listen to yourself. And if you're having that anxiety, even if there's nothing wrong, really important to just follow up on it. And the staff understand that as well. They know, especially in the first year, there's probably a lot of people panicking about things or just having anxieties post all the treatment. And that's really natural, isn't it? After my mum was diagnosed, she was called for her annual mammogram every August and she never worried about it until the year I was diagnosed. It didn't bother me, but that year it did. I think it was the first time in eight, ten years that I sort of dreaded going. And my fear was... If I have breast cancer, I wouldn't be able to cope with the chemotherapy. And that was my fear. That was the only time that I sort of felt, no, I couldn't. Alice still gets anxious before her annual mammogram. I'm three years on now since getting that diagnosis. I thought surely it's going to get easier. This is just going to become like something like going to the dentist. It's just going to be an annual appointment that you have to keep. I don't know. I can't like my stomach is in knots going in that waiting for results. It just doesn't get any easier. I asked Dr O'Connor if there was anything I did to cause my breast cancer. I and we as a, as a medical community are not very good at being able to say, why did you get it in the first place? Now, when you're young, the first thing is it does often ring an alarm bell for a gene in the family, and we ask about a family history. But even in families where there are other family members, it doesn't always mean there's a gene. Often we don't have a reason for why you got it. And that sometimes then adds to the fear of it coming back, because if they don't know why I got it, what am I doing to prevent it coming again? 
So while we might know what the exact trigger was, we do know that drugs help to prevent it come back, the weight management, the exercise, they help to prevent it come back, a good healthy diet, but we don't know what your trigger was. What piece of advice would the girls offer to someone going through cancer treatment? To reach out to somebody that has gone through it because then you can feel like you can relate to somebody. You're not going to feel it alone the way I did. So that would probably be my advice. And don't be afraid to ask questions, you know, and challenge things as well. If you're not happy, speak up because I sometimes feel people are too polite in a hospital setting and might be overlooked as a result in something. It could be something really small or it could be something important. So I do think it is important to be heard and to not be afraid to speak up and say your piece if you need to. This is what my GP, Sean Hogan, had to say. It's really important that you attend as quickly as possible. The one thing that would upset me is someone comes in and says, I've had it for six months, but I didn't really want to deal with it. And you're thinking, are we not getting the message across yet properly. The real thing is if there's anything of any concern, go and see your GP. If he says there's absolutely nothing there, grand, fine, walk away. But if there's anything that needs to be followed up on, get in as quickly as possible. The earlier you're seen, the earlier diagnosed, the better your success rate for treatment. One of the things I'm really excited about is the advances in technology. There's a new Smart Probe biopsy needle. It's being trialled in Cork at the moment and it could give women the all clear immediately. Now, it's a long way off being used in hospitals, but all the research and all the trials are really promising. If it had been available to me this year, it would have saved me a lot of fear, a lot of worry and sleepless nights when I thought that my cancer was back. Dr O'Connor says there's other advances that she'd like to see. A huge one for us and for women who've been through cancer is trying to develop a test, a blood test that would detect breast cancer. It would be fantastic if we had a reliable test that we could do on women who've had breast cancer. If we could say, have this blood test done every six months. And if the blood test is clear, you're clear. And if the blood test isn't clear, you need additional tests and it may well be you have cancer back. I can't wait for the day I have that test because I'll be able to reassure so many more women than what I can right now. I'll also be able to identify those where cancer is coming back and look to start effective treatments earlier. But sadly, we're not at that point yet. Initially, cancer consumed all my thoughts. It was all I could think about for months. I felt like I became the most boring person ever. I felt that my life was cancer. But with time, when you get back to work, you know, you're not thinking about it as much. And I know you do have the daily reminders, but it gets easier. Having that fear from time to time is just something that I have to deal with. It's just something I have to go through and it'll pass and it will get easier. But in the last two years, I mean, your life has changed so much. Cancer does change your life. But at the same time, cancer doesn't define you. It is part of my life now, but it's not who I am. Breast Cancer and Me was produced and presented by Sinead Ahern and funded by the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland with a television licence fee.